Hi. Oh, hey, family. It's good to see you guys. Um, to those of you I haven't seen in a while, good to see you. Uh, to those of you who I haven't seen ever and are wondering, who the heck is this guy they just gave a microphone to? Uh, my name's Adam, and I work here, uh, though I haven't for the past three months because uh, I've been on my seventh year on staff sabbatical. Um, when I left, we were just starting the Identity Sermon Series. Uh, if you're brand new, you have no idea what I'm, talk- I'm talking about, but otherwise you do. Um, and when I preached as part of that, I was preaching to myself at least as much to you guys as to you guys when I talked about how our identity is meant to be in Christ, meaning it's determined more by who God is and thus who we are as a reflection of him than it is by how we feel at a given time or our accomplishments or that sort of thing. Um, I really needed to hear that. Um, I was burning out extraordinarily hard, uh, harder than I thought I was burning out. Funny how that can sort of sneak up on you. Um, I was getting bitter and exhausted and honestly not a very fun person to be around. So uh, as long as I have the microphone right now, I just want to take a minute to say uh, if in that burnt out state um, I hurt or offended any of you, I want to say I'm sorry. Um, And that if any individual relationships got banged up by me being in such a bad headspace, please come talk to me about it later because I'd like to work on that. The, uh, the reason that I got so burned out, mostly, uh, was that I had this core belief that was profoundly unscriptural, profoundly false according to what Jesus says, and as those things tend to do, it was killing me. Um, I believed, at a really deep down level, that, my, uh, that all worth was earned. Nobody just has worth, you just acquire it through what you do. Um, I believed that my own worth was earned based on what kind of dent I could put in the world, uh, and therefore I had to do everything and then had to do it all perfectly, and because I'm in some form of leadership, then I'm supposed to make everybody around me perfect, whatever that means, um, and otherwise I'd somehow be worthless. Um, If if you're ever looking to destroy your health, by the way, um, attempting to change other people is a really efficient way to do that. Um, Highly recommend it. If you're looking to just core your soul out like an apple works Ten times out of ten. Seriously, don't. Um, A big part of my sabbatical then was learning just where I end and everybody else and the world around me begins. Um, Part of that meant, you know, figuring out what am I letting tell me who I am, how I feel, how I'm supposed to be. But the other part of it, equally important, was figuring out, you know, what do I believe I have to change in the world around me? What are my conditions for being at peace? So, Jesse let me preach on anything I wanted to this time. Terribly dangerous thing. Um, So, I want to share with you one of the bigger things that God taught me over my last three months of sabbatical. Um, So, let's look at that tonight. I'm going to be doing that through Paul's letter to the Philippians, chapter 4. And that'll be up on the screen uh, if you don't have a Bible of some kind with you that you want to use. Um, first things first, because this really is the first thing, the most important, let's pray, because uh, I need it, and so do you, uh, if this is going to mean anything at all in any of our hearts. So let's do that. <sighs> Holy Spirit, thank you so much for your presence in our lives. Thank you for being here with us tonight. Um, thank you that we could be here with each other. Um, and Lord, thank you for your word. Thank you for the scriptures that with, with which you guide us. Um, without which we'd be lost. 
Um, Lord, thank you for the way you've been setting me free through your word, and I pray that you would do more of that um, in all of our hearts. Um, Do your will with us, Lord, and may we love you more as a result. Amen. Okay, so let's see if I still know how to do this. Philippians 4, starting in verse 4, and I'll, I'll read through this. Rejoice in the Lord always. I'll say it again. Rejoice. Let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. Do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition, with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. Whatever you have learned or received or heard from me or seen in me, put it into practice, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned, but you had no opportunity to show it. I'm not saying this because I am in need, for I have learned to be content whatever the circumstances. I know what it is to be in need, and I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. So, show of hands, uh, who has heard all or part of this passage preached at least once in your life? Yeah, (laughs) really popular passage. Um, Also, show of hands, who has ever heard part or all of this preached really terribly? Okay, a couple few there, too. Um, The reason I ask, uh, if I had a dollar for every time this chunk of scripture has been butchered into, don't worry, be happy. Or, you should feel really bad about yourself for experiencing anxiety. Or, let's be good secular humanists and focus on the positive because bad things are bad. Uh, Or, my personal unfavorite, um, name it and claim it. Because if you slap the name of Jesus on something that you're trying, then he just has to give it to you. You can do all things through Christ who strengthens you. drives me crazy. If I had a dollar for every time one of those sermons has been preached in the history of the world, I could buy me a time machine and go back and stop that from happening. Uh, Clearly, I don't, time paradoxes being what they are. So let's just do the best job we can of understanding this truth honestly without any agendas other than that. There's, um, it was kind of hard to narrow down what part of this I wanted to focus on because there's at least four sermons in this passage and hours upon hours of prayer and meditation uh, individually or, or with, with others in a smaller group setting. Uh, I know this because I spent a month or two just praying through verse 8 of this for, you know, every, every day or so, and it was weirdly powerful. Try that sometime. Um, but tonight I want to focus mainly on verse 13. Uh, that said, um, uh, not that one just yet, Ben. Uh, that said, uh, what is the number one rule of understanding the Bible? Context, 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 context. You've been in Craig Blomberg's class. So have you, Craig Blomberg. Um, <laughs> at least once or twice. 
so as uh, when the staff and I were, were studying this together on Wednesday, they pointed out that all the verses that we had just read really do inform verse 13 and figure out how we can put that into work. So uh, let's start a little bit earlier. Back in verse 4, when we are told to rejoice, we're told that twice in a row, out of four or five times, just in this tiny letter in the New Testament, where we are directly commanded to do that. This is probably the only commandment in all of the New Testament that we all clearly understand, and no one here feels bad about disobeying. Right? I mean, if we're honest about this. We, we look at this, and what we see is... Wait, wait, wait. You're, you're telling me how I'm supposed to feel? Like, you, you can't just tell me to have a feeling. Like, that's not, that's not enforceable. That's not something I can choose. And, you know, I hear you. Like, as somebody who's battled depression for more than half of his life, I get it. Sometimes joy is hard. And sometimes you look around the room of your life and you can't really find any reason to rejoice. I've been there. I get it. But if that verse sounds terrifically annoying and unrealistic, don't worry. It's about to get much worse. Verse 6. Do not be anxious about anything. Well, hell. Thanks, Paul. So I'm just supposed to ask God for help, and then instantly, magically, with no conditions, I will immediately have peace. Um, if that was what that said. If I had a dollar for every time I tried that, and it didn't work the way I would like it to, uh, I could probably buy enough antidepressants to kill a horse, um, which wouldn't be all that helpful, because then either I would be dead or I would have just assassinated poor sea biscuit, the thought of which makes me freaking anxious. <laughs> At least two of you remember sea biscuit. So... <laughs> and the ones who are love this. Um, so hear me. Um, humor aside, I'm not trying to say that this part of God's word is false or that it's unrealistic. Far from it. What I am trying to say is that the way that God looks at things like anxiety and peace and joy is really, really different from the way that you and I tend to look at these things a lot of the time. And as usual, if I and God have a uh, disagreement on what is the proper way to look at something, I'm betting I'm going to swerve first. So verse 8, at first glance, the way we normally look at this stuff, really looks like Bobby McFerrin took over writing duties for a second. Don't worry, be happy. Because after all, think about good things. I don't know about you, but I hear that, and to me that sounds a lot like, don't think about bad things as if they were not there. Uh, and that drives me crazy. Because as a Christian and a goth and a poet, um, I absolutely hate it when people refuse to acknowledge the dark and difficult parts of life. They are part of life. You can't just stick your head in the sand and ignore that. Although I don't think that's what Paul is telling us to do. Because living in denial about your circumstances and transcending them are two very different things. Let's skip ahead to verses 10 to 13. Uh, a lot of you, if you're following along in your own Bible, probably have headings there that say things like, thanks for their gifts here. And that was Paul's occasion for writing this part. Like most scum staff, um, Paul was doing it first. Uh, he raised support in addition to working other day jobs like tent making. And the church at Philippi had been wanting to send money to keep him and his work for the kingdom going for quite a while. 
Uh, verse 10 said they had no opportunity to do this. And what this probably refers to is that um, they didn't know where to send the cash. Um, Paul did not have a PayPal account, um, didn't really have much of a mailing address either. Um, it was a little different in the ancient world, by which I mean completely and totally different in most ways. And uh, it's always harder to send somebody something when they keep getting themselves arrested, uh, which was apparently Paul's hobby. He just did it a lot. Um, Paul wrote this letter from prison, uh, we think probably while he was in Rome. Uh, so it was hard for the Philippians to find him and send the money like they had wanted to for some time. Apparently, uh, this delay didn't stress Paul out at all, because he then goes on to say, I am not saying this because I am in need, because I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Broken and imprisoned? Meh. Still going to rejoice, and I'm still going to tell you to. Paul had the perspective needed to see that this part of his life wasn't really about being in trouble with the law, again, and it wasn't really about having enough money at the time, or not. It was none of that stuff that you could see with his eyes that mattered. It was about what he referred to as the secret of being content in any and every situation, whether in plenty or in want. In some ways, it's kind of obnoxious that Paul says, hey, I've got a secret, and then he doesn't tell you what it is. But he, he does kind of in verse 13. I can do all this through him who gives me strength. Uh, this is one of those rare times where I really like the message paraphrase of this verse. Next slide. Um, which goes, whatever I have, wherever I am, I can make it through anything in the one who makes me who I am. In him. Have you ever noticed how often Paul uses phrases like that? I had not until recently. Um, especially in Christ, that particular phrase and variations on it. Um, I was studying this near the end of my sabbatical for fun because that is the kind of nerd I am. And um, what I read is that apparently some form of the phrase in Christ shows up 165 times just in Paul's writings, that ended up in the New Testament. That's twice per chapter. It's a pretty big deal. It's a really central concept in our faith, so I wanted to know what the heck it means. This is important to me because historically, I haven't been great at being, peace with, being at peace with the way things are. Maybe you can empathize with that. Um, Maybe call it perfectionism, maybe call it discontentment, maybe calling it accidentally watching the news from time to time. Um, I don't know if you've noticed, um, it's pretty messed up out there right now. <laughs> Not like it hasn't been since roughly the beginning of humanity, but it still is. It's objectively quite bad, and that's before you start looking closely at all the thoroughly broken things in our smaller scale individual and community lives. And with all that, I'm supposed to have peace during all of this. I'm supposed to be content in circumstances like these. This passage feels so not punk rock, right? Like me and the staff were talking about this on Wednesday, how indignant some people get, especially if you have more of like a punk rock mindset or an activist mindset, uh, when you start talking about the concept of contentment. Some things we've heard people say sound like, look, if you're not outraged, you are not paying attention. Or contentment, 
That's so irresponsible to even bring up when the world is just falling apart outside your door. What, are you just going to withdraw and stop caring about all the wrongs that are being done? Or, how dare you be happy at a time like this? Don't you care about any of these people that you say your God loves? They are suffering. How can you act like everything is okay? There is something weird about the Apostle Paul being so chill about things being so wrong. Because this is not a man who shies away from talking about things being pretty messed up. Uh, about his own suffering, he doesn't shy away from saying in Second Corinthians 11, Oh, do you want to know how I've been? I'm not going to say, oh, fine, how about you? I'm going to say, I've been jailed constantly. I've been beaten with every inanimate object you can think of. I've been shipwrecked. I've been targeted by my fellow Jews and the Gentiles. And I've gone hungry, sleepless, cold, and naked. How are you? And in Romans 3, he, he doesn't exactly soft-pedal how thoroughly ugly the world can get when he, quoting the Old Testament, says, there is no one righteous, not even one, not one who understands, not one who seeks God. All have turned away. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways in the way of peace they do not know. These are not the words of a man who is naive or in denial about what the, how bad the state of the world is and has been since basically the beginning. He knows how bad things are. And so do you. You know which of your friends are struggling with disease or heartbreak. You know which parts of your biofamilies are breaking off from divorce or bitter estrangement. You know what bills are coming up that you don't have money for. You know how many people you see on a daily basis that are not going to have a safe place to sleep tonight. How many people are not loved the way our Father wants them to be. You know how many people, maybe including you, are struggling under the crushing weight of depression and anxiety, hate, fear, and feeling worthless and alone. And so do I. I know that too. And I know the struggles that I have to love my neighbor as myself and the struggles that I've had to love myself as my neighbor. The way I'm not free from sins of contempt and self-centered pride is that the only way that I can have worth is by being better than the next guy. And I, um, and I know how my friend and big brother Brian Cross hung himself last month when I was still looking forward to the next time that we could get coffee. Um, when I was sure that we would have that chance. Lord, have mercy on us because things aren't okay. And in the midst of all that suffering, God tells us to be content. Contentment, as I read it, is letting go of your need for things to be different than they are. It's acceptance, which is a very hard thing to stomach sometimes. If you're like me a couple of months ago, you hear acceptance and you think giving up. You think abandoning any desire for things to get better. You think stagnation. You think admitting defeat. 
I want to suggest to you that there are two distinct kinds of acceptance. The first one is calling evil things okay. The second one is saying that we can be okay despite the existence of evil things. The first kind is pure poison, have nothing to do with it. But the second half is one of the most beautiful and life-giving gifts that our Heavenly Father has ever given us. That second kind is Christian acceptance. And it goes back to that secret of Paul's. Look at verses 12 and 13 again. I have learned the secret of being content in any and every situation, and I can do that through him who gives me strength. In Greek and in that message paraphrase that we read, the word that we translate through and through him is often translated in. We're talking yet again about being in Christ. And that's the secret. That is the powerful source of our peace in a world that will not give it to us. As I researched what this concept, this being in Christ, means, I found something that I think is really cool. It's also super complicated because somebody was able to write a dissertation about it. I mean, let's be real. You can write a dissertation about anything if you try hard enough, dig deep enough. But the short version is this. In a mystical, wonderfully weird way, we are united with Christ in a way that is not just a metaphor. If you've made the choice to accept him as your king, if you've chosen to be baptized into the church, baptized into Christ Jesus, as Romans 6 puts it, the spirit of Jesus is riding around inside your mind and heart and soul and body along with you. And you are not the only pilot on this plane. You are not the only roommate in this house. And I think that's beautiful. How many of us have been afraid of being left totally alone, lost, abandoned, or abandoned again? In Christ, you never are. You can't be. In Christ, you are part of the king of the universe, and he is part of you. You are joined with him in a way that is more intimate and close than any human marriage, although, according to Ephesians 5, that's probably the best metaphor that we have for it. If you've ever been married, then you know when you unite yourself, your life, with somebody else, you give up a huge amount of control compared to when you were just running the show solo. That's kind of how it has to be, because otherwise you're just two autonomous individuals doing your own thing near each other, and that's not being united. If you're not married by circumstance or by choice, think entering into maybe a business partnership or a roommate situation in a really small apartment, which I know a lot of you are familiar with, but with a roommate who, just like you, is home all the time, which many of you don't know what that's like. Um, but you have to move in sync. You have to be of one mind to some extent, or else the apartment falls into chaos, the business tanks, the marriage falls apart. In Philippians 2, we're told that if we have been crucified in Christ, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Crucified. We've got to die. Our need for control has to die. 
And that's what I think this is about, honestly. How do I respond to my need for control? The same way I was asking at the start of the sabbatical, where do I end and other people and the world begin? What do I think I have to change about the world or people around me for me to be okay? What are the conditions under which I can be at peace? Here's another part of the good news, the euangelion, the gospel. If we are in Christ, our peace and joy doesn't have to depend on any condition other than the glory and the goodness and the love and the victory of Jesus, our King. Contentment and joy in Christ means that because we are in Christ and vice versa, his victory is our victory. His rejoicing over that is our rejoicing. It's inside us now. His peace that comes from knowing beyond all doubt that the goodness of God wins in the end and drives out all evil and makes everything right in a way it hasn't been since the very beginning. That's ours now. You contain that if Jesus is in there. Do you realize, Christians, that buried somewhere in your chest is the word that spoke the universe into being? the one who's the very meaning of life, the one who defeated death in all its forms and who will reign for eternity in a perfect world with no more tears, that power, that person is riding around with you everywhere you go. When we take time to behold how much space is taken up in your soul by the one who holds earth and heaven in his hands. The more we meditate on that and direct our thoughts to that, the more we start to find that there just isn't much room left in there for despair. There isn't much room left for national news headlines that perch in the branches of your mind like pigeons and just poop all over the place. There isn't much room left for cynicism about how much the world really does suck because Jesus' words displace that, saying, My kingdom is not of this world, and take heart, for I have overcome the world. There isn't much room left for depressive, anxious, shameful thoughts of how imperfect and sinful I, Adam Skinner, am, and how I can never do enough to be good enough because Jesus fills up that space with a long and billowing scroll of words on how I am good because he is good and that the Holy One of Israel is part of the heart this ribcage carries around from place to place and there isn't room for rage or sorrow anymore about the loss of my friend Brian Cross died June 14th, 2017 because that space is occupied by the fact that Brian Cross is also in Christ and I will see him again in glory. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Family, we're pretty good at mourning here. It's time for us to receive our comfort. Suddenly, the earlier parts of this passage, the impossible, unrealistic-seeming ones, they start to look pretty real. Verse 4, rejoice in the Lord always, in the victory and love of Christ, not rejoicing in the broken and dingy world that we can see with our eyes. 
Verse 5, in every situation, present your requests to God with thanksgiving. Not giving thanks for the frankly pathetic kind of optimism that denies all the darkness and death in this world, but instead thanksgiving for the past, present, future victory over sin and death that Christ has accomplished and that he's rolling out a little more every day if we have the eyes to see it. Verse 8, we set our eyes on Jesus and the beautiful acts of redemption that he's doing nonstop, if only we'll stop and pay attention to it. The way he's taking this charred husk of a world and creating new sprouts of the true, noble, pure, excellent kingdom inside this world shell. And as verse 9 says, this is knowledge that we have to put into practice. Family, I know life is busy. It really is. I know you may be convinced that it's impossible to carve out any more dedicated time to pray and meditate on God's word and listen for what the Spirit wants to put in your heart through that. But believe me, regardless of what the sacrifices are for that, it's worth it. It took me three months of doing at least some of that almost every day to start getting this stuff through my rather thick skull to realize that I don't actually have to control or fix the world around me in order to have peace, and that I don't have to do enough to make myself good enough to have worth and joy. Hopefully some of you are less messed up than me and your mind needs a little less renewing in that department and maybe it won't take you three months. I don't know. But it takes focus and it takes persistence and it's good. It's the very meaning of our lives, being united with Christ. It's what's we're, part of what we're on earth to do and it's what we're in eternity with him to do. Why wait until the afterlife? So, I know that there's probably some of you who want to believe this, but you're concerned that if you start actually practicing contentment or acceptance in Christ, you'll stop growing and stop changing. And maybe you'll stop pushing back against the evil in this world because you're too busy hanging out inside your own head and heart, being all rejoicing and peaceful-like. And I get that. I am relentlessly growth-oriented, like to a fault. Um, and the idea of starting to stagnate because of contentment made me want to either throw punches or throw up when uh, my therapist or counselor um, brought that up with me. I was like, no, no, no. I don't want anything to do with that. That means I'm just going to stop, I don't know, earning my worth, um, doing God's job of saving the world. I don't know. But I didn't want it. Trust me, though. Doing this does not make you less effective. As a soldier of the kingdom of God, changing the world through love and truth, it makes you more effective. It's pure paradox, but it's true. When we do what Paul is describing here, we can let go of our frantic reactionary attempts to just scramble to change the world through force, which never works that well anyway, past the immediate short term and we can experience peace and joy and greater union with Jesus, and that means that we aren't driven by compulsion anymore. That we aren't just madly clawing away at any path to victory that we can find, which usually ends up doing more damage in the long term anyway. We can start doing the things that we do as Christians, doing justice, loving mercy, introducing people to the source of everything that's good, more effectively. We get better at changing the world in a totally different way than the world 
believes that change works. We become more like Jesus and the light of the world that he calls us. It gets a lot brighter. If we lean into this, we become beacons of light and peace that show people the way to the kingdom where their hearts can be changed. Because I will tell you from firsthand experience, you can't actually change anyone. (laughs) Took me a long time to figure that out. And which of the big problems in the world doesn't essentially come down to the evil in men's hearts, in the hearts of humankind, the hearts that only God can change as we introduce people to him, one by one. We can choose to do that verse 8 thing, thinking on these things, meditating upon Jesus and everything that reflects Jesus. And what is that except pointing our minds and the minds of those around us eventually to Christ, the one who can save us, the only one? We can be a set-apart people. We can change the world the only way that actually works, which is Christ's way. I cannot tell you how much better this is making my life the more I actually lean into it. And I love you guys, and I want this for you. I want you to discover these greater levels of freedom that you can find through doing what Paul is telling us here, doing what God is telling us through Paul. It'll change you if you let it, if you let him. It's not quick, it's not easy, but it's good. And once I accepted that I can't change the world and that uh, apparently it was never actually my job to personally, go figure, um, once I accepted that, I realized I can actually have joy now. And paradoxically, that kind of joy slowly changes the world of everybody around you. You can't help but sort of radiate it. Bit by bit, it's like the growth of mustard seed or the spread of yeast through a large lump of dough because that's how Jesus said the kingdom works. And I wouldn't have it any other way. As I got this into my head, and more importantly, let's be real, my heart, um, I can finally accept my limitations as a small, weak, often foolish human being. And I can accept that the world is not saved yet. That Jesus isn't back yet. And I accept that the patient pace at which Jesus is working is good, even if I would have chosen to do it faster. Because God's smarter than me, and I accept his way of running the show. In fact, bit by bit, I'm slowly learning not just to accept it, but to rejoice in it. To rejoice in him and his way of saving this world. If this whole idea stirs up a lot of conflict inside you, and let's be real, why wouldn't it? Um, Bring it to God. Talk with him about this. Pray with people about this. Talk with fellow Christians. Or if you're not a Christian and you're You want some of this, this peace we're talking about, this joy that's not contingent upon things getting better? Talk to a Christian and God, you know? We need the help of the Holy Spirit, and we need each other. Let's fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. May the God of peace be with you.